0: Well, I hope you found your way to the book of 1 Timothy. It's towards the end of your Bible, and it's a small book written by the Apostle Paul to his friend Timothy during Timothy's time in Ephesus. This morning, we're going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. I want to invite you to follow along as I read when I finish verse number 20. I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you can respond, thanks be to God. Would you follow along, please, as I read, beginning in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, But I received mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray and then look at this text together. Lord, you say that man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And so on your word, we rely today. Open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your word. Lord, I ask that this morning, as Paul asked for prayer I'm asking you that you would give me utterance to make known the mystery of the gospel this morning. That your word would find good soil in our hearts, would take root and rescue us. Nourish us, lead us, rescue us through your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. The letter of 1 Timothy was supposed to be read in front of the whole church of Ephesus. We learned this, if you were here last week, we know this because of the last word in the book of 1 Timothy. The last word in the book is the word you. Grace be with you. But it's a second person plural, personal pronoun. In other words, as we learned last week, Paul was from the South and he was saying grace be with y'all. That's what he's saying. It's to you all in the church of Ephesus. So though this book was written to Timothy, it was for the whole congregation. They were expected to be listening in. Now, just two to three years before the book of 1 Timothy was read for the church of Ephesus, there was another letter that had been written to that church. So follow along with me. We have the book of 1 Timothy. That's what we're looking at. Later, Paul will write the book of 2 Timothy. But there was a book before this. It was called Preface. Nope. It was called Ephesians. That's the book he wrote first to the church of Ephesus. He wrote them Ephesians and then followed it up with 1 Timothy and then later, 2 Timothy. When he wrote the book of Ephesians, two or three years before 1 Timothy, he warned the people about the danger of false teachers. He warned them about the danger, this is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, of being tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning by craftiness in deceitful schemes. These people were warned about false doctrine and they were encouraged to be rooted and grounded in Christ. They were supposed to hold fast to the truth of the gospel. Now, the picture I get when I think about the church of Ephesus, the place where First Timothy was read, the picture I get is of this little bobber you know, a fishing bobber, floating around loose in Lake Michigan, disconnected from its fishing line, lost at sea, a bobber that's being blown this way or that, pushed around by every wave of doctrine. Paul had warned the church about that, but they didn't listen. And we know that they didn't listen. We realize that they disregarded his words because by the time we get to 1 Timothy, just two or three years later, By the time we get here, Paul indicates in chapter 1, verse 3, 1 Timothy 1, 3, that there were certain persons teaching a, quote, different doctrine. Verse number 4, one that was composed of myths and endless genealogies. It was a sort of false teaching, verse number 4, that promoted speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And so these winds of false doctrine were wreaking havoc in the church of Ephesus, like wind and waves blowing around this bobber. This is precisely what Paul feared might happen. And so Timothy was sent to the church of Ephesus. He was in the middle of this mess that was going on. And as we learned last week, he was supposed to just stay on course. You stay there. You remain in Ephesus, verse number three. And you stop the garbage teaching, tell them to stop teaching a different doctrine, and you need to stick to the gospel, verse number 11. Paul refers to the gospel as the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. That was the church's only hope. You see, the church of Ephesus needed to be more like a buoy than a bobber. Do you know what the difference is? Even though a buoy is hit by the same wind and the same waves as that bobber, the buoy stays put. And it's because it's anchored to a bedrock far beneath the waterline. Come what may, the buoy remains steadfast. And that's what Paul wanted for the church of Ephesus. Folks, come what may, this brand of false teaching or this fad of aberrant doctrine. Come what may, the church must be rooted and grounded in Christ and his true gospel. We need to be a church that is anchored in God's truth, not going this way and that way, turning with every change of culture. So what is it that marks a church that's rooted or grounded in the gospel? Well, Paul gives us a few of these characteristics in our text this morning. First, a church that's rooted in the gospel learns to celebrate gospel service. They're glad to serve the Lord. Now, if serving the Lord stinks, then you're obviously going to look for a different option. I mean, consider this. If your walk with Christ is terrible, if there's nothing but complaining about your Christianity, then you will obviously look elsewhere. But a church that's truly grounded in the gospel is marked by the fact that they celebrate the gospel. They enjoy serving the Lord. It is a good thing. I wanna caution you parents in the room If all your kids hear is you complaining about your Christianity, what do you think you'll produce? I mean, what kind of hearts do you think you'll grow in those kids? They're going to want to look elsewhere. If serving God is so bad, then why not find something better? Note, my friends, Christians who are truly grounded in the gospel celebrate gospel service. It is worth giving yourself to. Following Christ is a privilege, not a chore. And you see this in verse number 12. Take a look at verse 12 and notice the heart of Paul right here in the beginning. You see it, verse 12? I thank him. The previous verse, he says he's been entrusted with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. And in verse 12, he says, And I'm thankful for it. It's a privilege. The vibe that you get from Paul is that ministry is a first draft pick, not a dreaded imposition. His heart is that it's not so much an obligation as it is an amazing opportunity to serve the Lord. I thank him. Can you hear the apostle? He's like, man, I just want to thank God today for entrusting me with the gospel, for letting me serve him today. Have you ever been at the, uh, you know, the the customary Thanksgiving gatherings? You know, family gets together, sits around a big table. There's some dry turkey, (laughs) some some mushy stuffing, you you know, the uh, cranberry sauce that came out of a can, it's still shaped that way, like a cylinder. Okay, you're sitting at this Thanksgiving table, and, uh, you know, mom always has this idea, oh, 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 before we eat, everyone needs to go around and what? Say something you're thankful for, right? Say something. And the first person goes, and they, they always steal the one. I'm thankful for my family. <laughs> and then the next person is like, oh, no, what do I say now? Do you realize if Paul was sitting at the Thanksgiving table, he would have said, I just thank God that I've been entrusted with the gospel. I thank God that I have the opportunity to serve him. That's how this text opens up. He celebrates gospel service. Are you thankful or do you complain? Are you excited to serve or do you bemoan the fact that your week has come up in the rotation? I came across this text a while ago and it has really impacted my life. It's Paul again, but it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse one. And it's, it's the same theme that we find in Paul's heart. His heart comes to the surface in 2 Corinthians 4.1. He just says this. Having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. What I've been given to do for the Lord is an expression of his mercy. It's not martyrdom. You see these Christians and they're like walking around. Oh, boy. I got nursery today, (laughs) you know, got to wear the orange shirt, you know, (laughs) it's martyrdom. No, it's not martyrdom. It's God's mercy. It's God's mercy. If you've been given a chance to serve the Lord, then it's a demonstration of his kindness in your life. Yes, I realize God's call on your life is not like a take it or leave it sort of thing. Paul says, necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. But don't get the wrong idea. Paul was serving the Lord, and for him, it wasn't a burden, it was a blessing. It wasn't indentureship, it was stewardship. I just want to ask you something this morning. Where would you be if you weren't serving the Lord? You know, know, I mean, sometimes something wells up in your heart, you're struggling with service. I know, I do too. But pause in those moments and ask yourself, where would I be if I wasn't serving the Lord? Where would I be? Do you know where you'd be? You'd be serving an idol. That's where you'd be. You wouldn't be free out there somewhere doing whatever you want. No, you would be a slave to sin. That's where you'd be. So all of a sudden in our hearts, when we have an opportunity to serve the Lord, not an obligation, it's a privilege. But not only that, I think the reason Paul's able to celebrate in verse number 12 he's able to celebrate serving the Lord, it's because it's not coming out of his own strength. It's not so much about being strong as it is about receiving strength. When God calls you to do something, when he gives you some way to serve him, he empowers you to do it. He equips you to get the job done. He doesn't send you on your way with no resources. No, he's the one that strengthens you to do it. Look at verse 12 again in our text. 1st Timothy 1:12 I thank him who's given me strength. Paul celebrates gospel service because it's not him trying to whip up something. Got to will myself into this. Come on, come on, come on, come on. You can do it. You can do it. No. He's like God has strengthened me to do this. I mean just think about some of the things Paul has written along the way. It is God who works in us both to will and do his good pleasure. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I toil with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. That's what Paul says. He realizes it's not my inner gumption or my innate strength. It's the strength that comes from God. I just wanna tell you that's why self-help philosophies Always hit a ceiling. I mean, you can go to Barnes and Noble and go down the long aisle with all these books about how you're going to fix yourself. You can go to all your therapists that tell you to look within and find the answer. It's right there. I know you haven't been able to find it your whole life, and that's why you're such a mess, but it's somewhere down there. No, 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 wait. That's why your self help is always going to hit a ceiling because it's going to be limited by yourself. All you have is you. And Paul actually is well enough with praise and thanks because that's not all he has. He has strength that's been given him by Christ Jesus. Friends, if you're living life without the Lord, then you're like a TV remote with no batteries. And click 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 and nothing changes. And have you found yourself in that spot? You've been hitting all the buttons. You've been trying to aim it just right. You've moved closer, but the channels don't change. And it's because you're missing Christ. Paul says, I give thanks because my strength comes from Christ. This is 2 Corinthians 2. Who's sufficient for these things? I mean, when it comes to gospel service, who can really do these things? Who's sufficient for these things? He says this, our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers. That's why Paul was grateful. That's why he celebrated gospel service. It's not so much about being strong as about receiving God's strength. Finally, this is the last thing I think he says about gospel service here. It's not so much about being skillful as it is about being faithful. Do you see that in verse number 12? I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. I know there are skills that are necessary for serving the Lord. We're going to find that in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 3, elders need to have the skill of teaching. They need to be able to teach. Or in 1 Timothy 5.17, they need to have the skill of ruling well. But there is so much more about the heart than the hand when it comes to serving the Lord. Man looks on the outward appearance. They size people up, but God looks on the heart. And here's Paul and he's just thankful for for gospel service because he, he just is trying to be faithful. It's not because he brings all these skills to the table. It's because he just wants to go day by day by day serving the Lord. Just faithfulness. Leave the fruitfulness up to God. I think if we're going to learn the lesson that Paul's talking about here in verse number 12, then we need to learn the beauty of plodding. Plodding. The famous missionary William Carey, he spent nearly 40 years in India in the late 1700s, early 1800s. He once wrote this. He said, If anyone should think it worth his while to write my life, if he give me credit for being a plodder, he will describe me justly. Anything beyond that will be too much. I can plod, I can persevere. Sure, there are skills and talents, but God is looking for faithful servants, churches that are rooted in the gospel have learned how to celebrate gospel service, give thanks, that God is using you in his service. But not only that, here's the second thing I think we find in our text, and that is that churches that are rooted in the gospel, number two, they expect gospel transformation. They expect that God's good news will actually change people. Now, I love this next section of the text because We're almost feeling like Paul is going down a rabbit hole. He's kind of getting lost in himself. But I want to clarify what's happening here. I want to tell you why Paul is doing what he's doing. Because Paul's going to tell like a little life story. All of you in the room, think back to when your parents did this to you. Okay? No, no, don't think about that. I'm telling you to think about something else. When your parents told you a story about their life, so that they could teach you a lesson about yours. Can you think of a time your parents did that? I mean, they sit you down, they're going to tell you a story, but it's not just any story. It's a particular story about their life because they want to teach you a lesson about your life. That's what they want to do. That's what Paul's doing here. He's going to kind of go into this little life story that he has here. But it's because he wants to teach Timothy and the whole church of Ephesus about the transforming power of the gospel. So, this isn't just Paul having this little nostalgic moment, going down memory lane. Okay, bring it back, Paul, bring it back. No, that's not what's happening. He has a purpose in this. He's telling a story from his life so he can teach them about theirs. He wants to teach them to expect the power of the gospel to change people. And so that's his broader purpose. And we know that because of verse number 16. Look at verse 16, right in the middle of his kind of his, his own personal story. Verse 16 says, his patience is an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So Paul's going to talk about his own life, how God worked in his life. And he's saying, man, God was patient with me. But the reason God was patient with me is so that it could be an example and give all of you hope that if God could change a person like Paul, then God can change anyone. Do you see? That's what he's doing here in this personal story. He wants us to have an expectation that God will do transforming work through the gospel. So how does this section start? How do we expect gospel transformation? Well, notice that he starts with what the gospel is. And this is in verse number 15. What is the gospel? And this is an important pause because there are a lot of religions out there who will use the churchy word gospel. You know, they throw this word around. Gospel means this, or gospel means that, or gospel is a type of music, or gospel is a, you know what I mean? Gospel gets all these different labels. Paul's gonna give a short summary in verse number 15, take a look at verse 15. The saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance. And then it's like, here, here it is. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he puts, of whom I am the foremost. Now think about this verse for a second, the essence of the gospel. Think about it for a second. It starts by saying the gospel is true and Trustworthy. And it deserves to be fully accepted. That means by you, friend. I mean, maybe you came in here with questions this morning. Or maybe your friend dragged you in here and you're a skeptic this morning. If the Apostle Paul were here, he would say this. The good news should be accepted by you. It deserves full acceptance. It's intended for everybody. Imagine if a cure for cancer was discovered, clinically tested, and resulted in 100% effectiveness in 100% of patients in every longitudinal study. I mean, imagine if that happened. If that happened, you could accurately say, this cure is true and trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. Now, the gospel isn't the cure for cancer, it is the cure for sin, And it deserves to be fully accepted, Paul says. He goes on and he says, this gospel concerns Jesus. Do you see it there? The saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus. It concerns Jesus and his work of saving sinners. That Christ Jesus came into the world, verse 15, to save sinners. If you have a gospel that is merely getting you rich, That is not the right gospel. If you have a gospel that's supposedly just gonna give you good health, that is not the gospel. If you have a gospel that just simply gives you good vibes, that's not the gospel. The gospel must deal with your sin. Christ Jesus came into the world not to give good vibes, not to buy you a jet, give you a vacation home, make you feel happy. That's not why he came into the world. Jesus came into the world to save sinners to rescue us from our sin. If you are encountering some gospel that doesn't expose your sinfulness, then it is not a true gospel. You will never get to the good news unless you go through the bad news. The bad news is you're a sinner. The good news is Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Praise be to God. But this gospel doesn't just stay out here in these general terms. It needs to be received individually. And that's why Paul puts this little section at the end, of whom I am foremost. You see, there are people who can intellectually assent to the truth of the gospel, but never personally appropriate the truth of the gospel. Yes, Jesus died on a cross. Yes, he paid for people's sin. Yes, 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 but it's not you. If you never get to the point that you need a savior, that you're a sinner who's drowning without Christ, then you will never be saved. Paul had to come to the conclusion. Do you remember this? this is an, if you wanna read more about the expansion of this, it's in Philippians chapter three. He goes through this long list of all of these accolades about how he was such a religious person, religious person, religious person. Everybody thought he was amazing, amazing, amazing. Look at how religious and righteous he is. Look at all of his zeal for God. Look at all of that. And he says, I count it rubbish. All of that is loss for the excellency of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Religion doesn't make you righteous. Only Jesus can do that through his saving death on the cross. And so Paul had to get to this point where he would say, I'm the chief sinner. I need Jesus to save me from my sin. I was reading about this fellow at Trinity Hall, Cambridge, all the way back in 1520. Now, it's an interesting little story because in 1520, this Cambridge fellow came across Erasmus' edition of the Greek New Testament, you're like, wow. <laughs> no, the reason I think that's really cool is because I got to hold a first edition Erasmus Greek New Testament that was in Philadelphia by an ancient book dealer. I mean, it was, it was a 1500 first edition Greek New Testament by Erasmus. I'm like, wow, I'm flipping through this. And my friend had a brand new digital camera. He took pictures of me. He didn't know how to work his digital camera and accidentally erased all of those pictures. If you know Josh Longoria, you can punch him in the arm. It was him. So I'm reading this story about this guy in 1520 in Cambridge. He came across Erasmus' edition of the Greek New Testament. And this is what he wrote. His name was Thomas Bilney. They called him Little Bilney because he was a short guy. Little Bilney wrote this. He says, at last... I heard speak of Jesus even then when the New Testament was first set forth by Erasmus. And at the first reading, as I well remember, I chanced upon this sentence of St. Paul, oh, most sweet and comfortable sentence to my soul. In 1 Timothy 1, it is a true saying and worthy of all men to be embraced that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief and principal. This one sentence, through God's instruction and inward working, which I did not then perceive, did so exhilarate my heart, being before wounded with the guilt of my sin, and being almost in despair, that even immediately I seemed unto myself inwardly to feel a marvelous comfort and quietness. In so much that my bruised bones leaped for joy. After this, the scriptures began to be more pleasant unto me than honey or the honeycomb. Little Bilney had been in a search, a quest for peace. And he couldn't find it until he came across this edition of the New Testament. He began to read, he gets to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And it was a balm to his heart. My friend, if you're on a quest for peace this morning, what you desperately need is the same balm that little Bilney found in this text, and that is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners like us. A gospel-grounded church actually expects the gospel to transform people. It starts by understanding the essence of the gospel, but it continues by sharing our experience with the gospel, and that's what Paul does in his personal story. He's just going to share with the church of Ephesus, through Timothy, his own experience with the gospel. He says in verse number 13, take a look at our text, verse number 13, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. That's why he comes up with the conclusion he was the foremost sinner. He was a blasphemer, a persecutor of the church, and he stood in insolent opposition to the faith. My friends, if we're going to share our experience with the gospel, we need to start by admitting who we were before Christ. We, too, were the foremost sinners. I don't know how you feel in this valley, but sometimes, I'm just going to be transparent with you, sometimes I get really frustrated by the plastic smiles, the everything's amazing, sort of fatuous speech, the fake it till you make it, mentality here, people that are projecting, they're acting like they have everything, they need nothing, it's all great, it's always been that way, they're liars, they're liars. Sometimes I just want to rebel against the facade. I just want to rip the mask off. It makes me want to just say out loud, I'm broken. Like while they're acting like they have everything together, I just want to like rebel and say, well, I'm broken. I'm a mess. I fail regularly. You know, I just want to just speak the truth right into these fake scenarios. I am a sinner. And I suffer. I suffer. Friend, if you're ever going to get to the gospel and share your own experience of it, it has to begin with you admitting who you were before Christ. If you were never a sinner before Christ, then you haven't been saved. If you've never been a sinner and a sufferer, you'll never be a saint. There is this, um, there's this terrible thing that has happened in changing the lyrics of a famous song. These lyrics were written in 1772 by a man named John Newton. John Newton wrote the most famous English hymn entitled Amazing Grace. John Newton was a slave trader before Christ, he was a sinful wretch. That's how he viewed himself. And that's why those words come out in the first line of the song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Now, this is what's going on in some of the newer versions. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved and strengthened me. Or I found this one, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a soul like me. Or this one, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved and set me free. Do you see what's going on in each of those three renditions? They're taking out the fact that we were wretches before Christ. Paul doesn't pull any punches two times. He just says, listen, I was the foremost sinner. I blasphemed, I persecuted the church, I was an insolent opponent He admitted who he was before Christ so that he could testify about what he received from Christ. Do you see this? If you're not a sinner, you don't need anything. If you are like the Pharisee who goes to the temple and says, I thank God that I've got everything together, that I'm not like these other people out here. No, no, no. You need to be like that, that publican who just falls on his knees, beats his chest, And he calls himself the sinner. If you admit who you were before Christ, then you'll be able to testify about what you've received from Christ. Take a look at verse number 13. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, I received what? Mercy. I received mercy. Because I had acted ignorantly and unbelief. And look what he says in verse 14. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me, super abounded for me. It's like the picture of a river. The grace was like a river and it was flooded and overflowing. And do you know what this flooding river of grace did for Paul? It washed away unbelief and replaced it with faith. It washed away insolence and replaced it with love. Look what he says in verse 14. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He was just testifying about what he received from God. And he says, and God's patience was meant to lead others to repentance. Verse 16, if God can change Paul, God can change us. Expect gospel transformation. That's what a gospel grounded church does. They start with the essence of the gospel. They share their experience with the gospel and they praise this part. They praise the God of the gospel. A church that is grounded in the gospel knows it's not about them. It's about him. I just want to be super clear. Religions will teach you that the way you get to God is by climbing a mountain of morality fix yourself. Do more. Do better. Give more. Stop that. Climb, 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 climb. It's a never-ending ascent to try to get yourself to God. And I just wonder, if you've been on that journey, have you done enough? When will you know that you've done enough? Have you worked hard enough? You're not there yet. Listen, if you're involved in one of those sort of religions you're an exhausted person, or you're a pretending person, but you're not a person at peace. Religions will tell you to climb the mountain, and here's why. Because if you're climbing the mountain, you know who gets glory when you get to the summit, and you never will get to the summit, but do you know who would get glory if you'd get there? You would. Congrats. Give yourself a high five. Pat yourself on the back. Look at all you did. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians chapter two, for by grace, you are saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, lest any of us should boast. You see a church that is grounded in the gospel, they give praise to the God of the gospel He's the one who actually saves. He's the real rescuer. He's the deliverer. He's the one we look to. And that's why Paul, like when he's telling his story, like I was once a blasphemer. I was an insolent opponent. I opposed the church. I tried to crush the faith. But God in his mercy, his grace, like a river overflowed for me. He replaced unbelief with faith. He replaced insolence with love. He drastically transformed me. And he gets to this and he can't stop. He's like, so I just need to praise God. That's what he does in this text. That's what I want you to see in verse number 17. That's why that verse is there. It's not like an imposition, like he had nothing else to write. So he's like, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible. No, he can't stop praising God. Because God is the one who transforms people. Do you see it, verse 17? He's the king of ages. He's immortal. He's invisible. He's the only God. To him be honor and glory forever and ever Amen. Let me see if I can just break this down real quick. He starts out, he's the king of the ages. In other words, God is the eternal king. His reign is everlasting. Think about this. In a time when kings were born, ascended to a throne, ruled, and then they died. Paul is saying that there is a different kind of king. Sure, there are royal dynasties that come and go. Pharaohs, Caesars, emperors, presidents, and prime ministers that rise and fall. But God is the king of the ages. There's no election cycles and no term limits on God. So Paul gives him praise. He says, not only is he the king of the ages, he's immortal. Perhaps you could translate it, he's incorruptible. It means that God, unlike milk in your refrigerator, does not have a use by date. He is imperishable. He won't decay. There's no expiration date on God. He's immortal. Friends, think about life all around us. Rivers alter their course. Mountains erode. Stars collapse. Things slow down, cool off, tend towards disorder, entropy. Even our own bodies, they age and sag. They wrinkle and ache. We wake up with more pain and less hair. And all the tummy tucks and lift-me-ups and Botoxes and Rogaine treatments in Utah can't stop it. We are like a shoelace that keeps breaking until it can't be tied anymore. We're wearing out and we're slowing down, but God is not. He's not falling apart. He never becomes less. He's incorruptible, or as Paul puts it here, he's immortal. He's the king of the ages. He's immortal. He goes on, he says, and he's invisible. You're like, how is that worth praising God over? By nature, friends, by nature, God is spirit, not flesh and bones. He is not limited. And this is important because it means that God is not limited to spatial location, He's not made of matter with parts and size or dimensions. That's what idols are made of. Have you ever wondered why the second commandment says, You shall not make for yourself any graven image or any likeness? In other words, I am spirit by nature. I will not be confined to a little idol that you can put in your pack and carry around with you. I'm a God that is not confined by space, parts, or dimensions. Yes, the Bible uses anthropomorphic language. The prophets had visions. The patriarchs saw theophanies. Moses got a glimpse of some of God's glory, but God is spirit, and as such, he is invisible. I mean, right next to this, you could put 1 Timothy 6.16. Chapter 6, verse 16, it says that God dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has, no one has ever seen or can see. We can no more see God than we can see gravity. But that God is invisible doesn't mean he's unknowable. Like gravity, there is evidence for his existence all around us. Listen, friends, when you go outside and you look at the stars at night, or you look at these amazing mountains, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. The visible creation points to the invisible creator, And not only that, but think about how the Son of God took on flesh to make God known. Paul puts it this way in Colossians 1.15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That's who he is. You want to know the invisible God? Learn about him through Jesus. Finally, Paul closes his praise by saying, he's the only God. Did you catch that in verse number 17? He's the only God. He has no rivals There's no other being in the universe who shares his attributes. He alone is God. Isaiah puts it this way. And maybe you're here this morning and you come from a religious background where you think that there are other gods. Or maybe you've been taught pluralism, like there are all these different ways to think about God or to get to God. Maybe you're a polytheist. Maybe you believe in a heavenly father and a heavenly mother who had spirit children and then populated an earth, and then they can become gods, have their own planet, become heavenly father, heavenly mother, populated an earth, have another, and there's an infinite number of gods. Maybe that's what you've been taught. But if that's the case, I want you to see what Paul says here in verse number 17. He gives praise to the only God. Isaiah 44:6 6 and Isaiah 45, 5 put it in undisputable terms. Listen to what God says. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. I am the Lord. There is no other. Beside me, there is no God. I mean, that's pretty definite. He is the only God. He's the God of the gospel. To him be honor and glory forever and ever. There was a man named Jonathan Edwards who graduated from Yale in 1720, later became the president of Princeton University, author, theologian, minister. Do you know what set his heart aflame with joy in God? It was verse number 17. He wrote about coming across this verse some 300 years ago. He said, the first instance that I remember of that sort of inward sweet delight in God And divine things that I have lived much in since was on reading the words, now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. I thought with myself, how excellent a being that was. How happy I should be if I might enjoy that God and be wrapped up in him in heaven. And be as it were swallowed up in him forever. I kept saying and as it were singing over these words of scripture to myself and went to pray to God that I might enjoy him with a new sort of affection, an inward sweet sense of these things. Some of you are like, that kind of sounds like John Piper. No, John Piper read Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards read verse 17. And his heart was filled with joy in God. A joy like that can be an anchor for a church. Affections that are set ablaze by the character of God, that can stabilize any believer in the midst of even the worst of storms. You're not to be lost in speculations and myths that these false teachers were purporting, you're not to be distracted by vain discussions like these different doctrines were teaching. Paul says, no, be a gospel-grounded church that celebrates gospel service, expects gospel transformation. And as I close, here's the last thing. Be a gospel-grounded church that deals with gospel threats. He closes this chapter by encouraging Timothy to deal with things that threaten the gospel. Do you see it in the last few verses? Verse 18 This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Deal with things that threaten the truth of the gospel. Wage the good warfare. Verse 19. First, deal with gospel threats by dealing with the threats to your own soul. Verse 19. Holding faith and a good conscience. And it's the only way we can remain gospel-rooted rooted is if we deal with the things that threaten our own souls first. It's interesting. We want to think about opposition that's out there. But Paul encourages Timothy to look at the opposition that's in here first. He tells him that he needs to hold faith and a good conscience. Wage the good warfare. But the way you're going to wage the good warfare is first by holding faith and a good conscience yourself. In other words, some preventative care. Grasp the faith. Clutch it. Never let it go. I mean, if you don't have a good hold on this, then likely the threats of false doctrine will be more intense. Paul tells Timothy, hold the faith. Clutch it. Stand in it. When I read that, I was thinking about 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul similarly writes, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. Friends, we need to hold the faith. But he says, hold the faith and maintain a good conscience. Do you know what it means to maintain a good conscience? I mean, I think most of us in here stop thinking about Jiminy Cricket, he's not your conscience. Your conscience is a gift from God that either excuses you or accuses you. And he's saying here, you need to maintain a good conscience. And the way you do that is by walking in step with the Spirit of God, by obeying God's Word. Do you know how you sear your conscience? You sear your conscience when you know to do right and you don't do it. When you quiet God's voice and say, I want to do something else. When there's a little stir inside of you that says, you shouldn't do that, and you still do it. That's how you sear your conscience, and if you sear your conscience, you open yourself up to all sorts of danger. You see, he says, do you want to know what's going to threaten the gospel in your own life, Timothy? It's if you do not hold fast to the faith, if you do not seek to maintain a good conscience. It will not do to cover and conceal sin in your life. It will not do to partition your life so that you can sin on Monday through Saturday and come here and sing on Sunday. There are people that partition their life that way. They say no to their conscience. They say no to the spirit of God. They sin, sin, sin willfully And then they try to have this other part of their life that looks good. It will not do. Paul has already said in this chapter in verses 5 and 6 that those who swerve, look at verse 5 and 6, those who swerve from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, verse number 19, they end up shipwrecking their faith. If you're a believer, you need to remember your calling, hold the faith in good conscience, and in so doing, Deal with those threats to your own soul. He ends the chapter, he says, you need to have some preventative care, but you also have to have some remedial care. There are threats to your own soul, but there are also threats to the church. And he calls out a couple people. Paul, just naming some names. Crazy Alexander. Hymenaeus is remembered from this point on. He's this guy that shipwrecked his faith. Look at verse number 19, by rejecting a good conscience, by rejecting this, a good conscience. Some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Two men who willfully seared their consciences and ended up shipwrecking their faith. The text said that they need to be excommunicated from the church or, in other words, handed over to Satan. It's the same phrase that's used in 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5. These men needed to be put out of the church to stop their infectious influence, preserve the purity of the body, and prevent the name of Christ from being trampled upon. One author put it this way, for some it takes being cast off into the sea to realize the advantages of being on board the ship. Though Hymenaeus and Alexander made shipwreck of their faith, Paul knew that sometimes you can survive a shipwreck. I think there's an encouraging word in the last line of our text this morning. It's in verse 20. He says, that they may learn. Paul's hope is that they would learn, that they would repent of their blasphemy and ultimately be restored. My friend, I'm not sure where you are in your relationship with the Lord. But if you haven't been holding faith in a good conscience, then today is the day to repent and return before it's too late. The winds of sin and the waves of subtle teaching will blow you further and further away like a bobber. So today, if you hear your voice his voice, then don't harden your heart. Instead, anchor yourself to the gospel. Get grounded more like that buoy. And may the Lord help this church to be rooted in his truth. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes as we close in prayer? As you quiet your heart this morning and reflect on the word of the Lord, I wonder if some of you have been worn down in service to God. Maybe it's turned into a heart of I have to instead of I get to. Perhaps today God has stirred you to start viewing ministry as a mercy. Maybe you need to thank him for his strength and just celebrate gospel service. Or perhaps God is prodding you this morning to deal with a gospel threat in your life. Have you been searing your conscience? If so, then repent of it. Maybe you've been listening to Godless Voices, podcasts, YouTube, TV, You know it's eroding your faith. If that's the case, then you need to deal with those threats today. Finally, I wonder if someone here needs to experience gospel transformation. Are you tired of your sin and ready for forgiveness? Are you frustrated with being lost in life and ready to find a new way? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Will you turn from your sin and trust Jesus today? friend, he can change you from the inside out. Well, I want to turn this place into a house of prayer for the next few minutes. You can pray silently to yourself, but better yet, why don't you gather in groups of three or four and just share what God taught you today? Share something he taught you. And maybe the most outgoing person in your group can just pray. And in, in a few minutes, Pastor Will will come and close this time of response with a corporate prayer. So take a few minutes, either pray by yourself or better yet gathering groups of three or four, share what God has taught you. And maybe the most outgoing person could pray for your group. Up on the screen, maybe there's a few things you can think about. Do you need to start viewing ministry service as an expression of God's mercy? Is there a conscience issue you need to repent of or a threat that needs to be dealt with? Who do you wanna see transformed by the gospel? Maybe pray for them. Maybe just give praise to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. Let's take a few minutes and transform this space into a house of prayer.